Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-29. On our podcast today, I want to continue in addressing the subject of Matthew 23-7, where Yeshua spoke saying, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. We have been looking at the physical material father of faith based on the foundational context of the great law code giver, Amurabi. But now let's go over to the second part of Hammurabi's name, which is the term Abi or Avi. In the Hebrew Bible, names often reflect religious ethnicity. Even if one did not actually believe in Yehovah, the God of Israel, it was typically Semitic tradition to add prefixes and suffixes to the names of sons and daughters in order to show honor and respect to the deity of the culture. Long ago and even today, whether it is among the Jews or among some other culture, ancient or modern, the idea of someone adopting a spiritual name that is different from one's birth name is nothing new. For example, King Shlomo, Solomon, was called Lemuel in Proverbs 31.1, in Esther 2.7. Hadassah's additional name was Esther. In Genesis 32:28, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Avram was given the name Avraham in Genesis 17:5. Sarai was given the name Sarah in Genesis 17:15. For the biblical personality of Joseph, son of Jacob, an extra Hebrew letter Hey was added to his name, making it Yehoseph. And you can see that in Psalm 81, verse 5, or in the Hebrew, verse 6. And for Jonathan, the son of King Saul, likewise, an extra Hebrew letter Hey was added to his name, turning it into Yehonatan in 1 Samuel 14, 6. So even in these days, when Jews make Aliyah, or go up or move to Israel, they often take on a new name, such as David Gruen to David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, or Goldie Mabuvich to Golda Meir, Israel's fourth prime minister. Based on my understanding of Semitic culture and Semitic names written in the Hebrew Bible, I am suggesting that King Hammurabi of Babylon, a Semite of the Emory or Amorite culture, likely would have identified himself with the religious ethnicity of his tribal people, the Emory, or again, the Amorites. This would lead me to suggest that King Hammurabi's known name would have shown honor to the tribal deity that was worshipped. 
If we consider that the Emory worshipped a deity named Amuru, as it has already been suggested previously, then the name Hammurabi would likely have reflected the god of his father and perhaps even point us to the larger geographical origin of his Emorite people. This said, I'm proposing that King Hammurabi of Babylon, who was known to worship a deity of justice called Shamash, that this Amuru was another name for that deity. Therefore, the name Hammurabi or Amurabi might perhaps echo one of three linguistic exercises that we often see in all language families. These three linguistic exercises are, one, a compound term of two words. For example, cannot, baseball, or crosswalk. These are compound terms of two words. Number two, a contraction term of two words. For example, your, which is you plus are, their, which is they plus are, and I'm, I plus am. These are contraction terms of two words. And three, a blended term that combines two words. For example, Medicare, paratroops, motel, brunch, podcast, coined from iPod and broadcast. So these are blended terms combining two words. So in summary, all languages use these kinds of linguistic exercises for various words in their local language. They might use compound terms of two words, they might use contraction terms of two words, or they might use blended terms combining two words. I don't see this as any great surprise in taking a look at the name Hammurabi. As with many Semitic languages, such as Akkadian, Sumerian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Aramaic, Arabic, and Yes, even Hebrew. The term father is based on the root ab or av, aleph, bet, ab or av. And similarly, the term for a leader, an educator, an official, it's based on the root rab or rav. Notice there in rab and rav, there's the word ab or av, the term for father. Seeing that the Emory spoke Akkadian and Hammurabi also spoke Akkadian, therefore we could possibly surmise that Hammurabi might be a compound, a contraction, or a blend of two Semitic words, Amuru plus ab or Amuru plus Abi, or even Amu plus Rabi. My opinion, I think it could be anyone's guess. Now, I am not a linguist, and so I cannot say for sure that I am correct. I am simply putting this idea on the table for our consideration. The language of Aramaic, like Hebrew, 
are both Semitic languages, resulting in the sharing of many common features with many other Semitic language families. Okay, let's take a look at Yeshua's lesson about an Abba, or Father, in Aramaic. This again brings me back to my original question. What would be so awful about calling anyone on earth a father? My answer? I don't think there's actually anything wrong with it. So long as one is referring to one's biological father or stepfather, as the case may be, considering that father as a head of the home. But the moment we cross the line into the realm of one's spiritual authority, spiritual teacher, spiritual rabbi, or spiritual father, this is where the custom breaks down. And Yeshua was showing himself as being quite clear on the matter in Matthew 23, 9. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. The Jewish idea of adopting a spiritually learned man as one's spiritual authority or father was passed down to us long ago through an oral tradition that was received during the days of the Jewish exile to Babylon, of which I will give you the details of this in a moment. In the decades before and in the centuries following Yeshua, a lot of Jewish teachers and spiritual halachic Jewish law authorities were often referred to as father. For example, in Judaism, we have a volume of literary work that is called the Pirkei Avot, that is, the ethics of the fathers. Less than two centuries later, after the compilation of the Pirkei Avot, Catholicism produced a long line of pontiffs referred to as popes or fathers. The tradition of elevating earthly men and their religious cultures to the position of a spiritual father figure was known from Adam's mutiny in the Garden of Eden, a baked-in teaching of the ancient Hebrews comprised of Israelites and Jews or Yehudim. Let's take a look at some references to help us understand this idea a little bit better. John 8.38, Yeshua speaking to the religious leaders of his day. I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. Now, to understand that, Let's go here to John 8:44. Again, Yeshua speaking to the religious leaders of the day. You are of your father the serpent, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Compare this to Ezekiel 16.3. 
Thus says Jehovah Elohim to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan, Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, an Amori, and your mother a Hittite or a Hitti. Now Deuteronomy 26.5 And you shall answer and say before Jehovah Elohecha, My father was an Aramean of Amorite influence about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. So I would ask the question, Why was this spiritual father figure idea such an important issue with Yeshua? I think within the context of what he was instructing, Yeshua was warning us about the dangers of forging a new covenant with the enemy of our souls by trading in our redemptive freedom purchased for us through Yeshua. Yehovah was warning us to steer clear of spiritual slavery to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3, a slavery that he came to destroy by submitting to the spiritual authority of a man or a man's religious or spiritual culture or a man's legal law code as our wisdom and assigning him or the culture ultimate spiritual rights to speak into and or control of our lives to define and interpret religious biblical law. All of this is analogous to exactly what the king of Babylon did through the authority of his laws, establishing an earthly man or even a religious culture as a father, no matter how innocent or excellent it might appear to be, I am submitting to you that this is nothing short of energizing and or calling upon the spirit of the Nephilim, the giants, in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I think that this was the spirit of the Amuru deity of the Emori, the Amorites, a spirit that has the power to enslave us all over again, putting us back into slavery to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Etzada in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Let us now take a look at the notion of the Babylonian Aramaic word rabbi or teacher. Again, going back to Matthew chapter 23, verses 7 through 8, just prior to Yeshua's statement about not calling any man on earth father, he makes this declaration. They, the religious men of Jewish spiritual leadership, loved the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, 
For one is your teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brethren. So, what is this all about? It appears to be pointing us back to the custom of honoring a religious empire's pantheon of great deities. Allow me to explain. In Hebrew, we can find no word rabbi or rab or rabban, because Hebrew does not have any of this jargon. Rabbi, rabbi, Rabban were all Babylonian Aramaic terms that originated in the exile of Yehuda. The teaching authority trait of this term comes down to us from the authority word Rav, which was an ancient Semitic term for one with a religious and or government stamp of authority. For example, in Akkadian, in the days of the ancient Amorites, the word Merabienu, this meant a foster father in Akkadian, an educator, a tutor. And what was a rabbi in ancient Akkadian? He was a chief religious and or government overseer. In the ancient Mesopotamian city of Mari, the term rabbi was shown to mean a section commander. To cite a modern-day example for us, we know from church history that many cultures of Europe practiced various kinds of customs and traditions that were clearly pagan in derivation and, in fact, even had pagan vocabulary to define their practices. Catholicism, Protestant Christianity, and yes, even Judaism— have all adopted a number of established customs and expressions by merely Judaizing them or Christianizing them, giving these unholy traditions a kind of um, holy veneer. The same ideas have proved true with Judaism's ancient adoption of the terms Rav, Rabbi, and or Rabban labeling each of these with spiritual job descriptions that go along with the needed terminology. So, today's religious branches of Orthodox Judaism, such as Chabad, boldly admit without embarrassment that the Aramaic term Rav originated with the men of the Babylonian Aramaic diaspora way back in the days of the Yehudi exile, the Jewish exile. Again, take a look at the biblical narrative involving King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.17. And the king of Assyria sent to Hezekiah Tartan, a commander-in-chief of some sort in the government, and Rob Saris and Rob Shakeh. In his day, Yeshua warned us against assimilating and using this kind of language by addressing the Jewish tendency to elevate certain earthly authorities over that of our Father in heaven. 
This makes perfect sense in light of Yeshua's words and teachings in Matthew 23, 27 through 28, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear just or tzaddik, righteous to men. But inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Keep in mind, lawlessness is always defined in Scripture as having no justness of Jehovah. No tzaddikness, if you would want to put it that way. In this, we have not appropriated Jehovah's payment system for us through his living Torah, that is, the Messiah, the Son of Yah. In not appropriating his righteousness, his tzaddikness, if you want to put it that way, we become lawless. And if we think anything otherwise, we are filled with hypocrisy because we are denying the one who bought us and paid for us and redeemed us with his payment system. And once again, with these words, we are reminded of a number of archaeological and historical finds that have brought to light the use of ancient Assyrian iconography with the engraved names of many of its esteemed kings. Some of the names can even be identified as they are written in Hebrew scripture, including not just their names, but also their nicknames, or if you will, their monikers and handles. Some of the labels that have been found in archaeology include Belurabu, meaning a great master, Ab-Ilani, meaning father of gods. Il Asuri, meaning the god of Asur, and Sadurabu, meaning a great mountain. These are all of Akkadian and Sumerian and the Amorite language. These terms come out of their languages. So I would like to focus in specifically on this idea Sadurabu from the Akkadian language. It means a great mountain. Interestingly, this brings to mind some Jewish ideas in the days of Yeshua and well beyond him, expressions to describe the profoundness of learning that some Jewish teachers of the period had for great halachic learning and wisdom. You know what I'm referring to rabbinic schools, and selected rabs or teachers with Jewish authority were in fact sometimes likened to mountains. How do we know? Because it's in our Jewish literature. It's in our Jewish writings. It's all been passed down to us. For example, we can read things like this. They sometime asked Rav Joshua, 
What is it concerning the sons of the envious woman? There you can see 1 Samuel 1.6. And Rav Joshua answered, Oi, you put my head between two high mountains, namely the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. The teachers of the day would use the term He is a rooter-up or a remover of mountains, referring to great learned rabbis. Another, Rab Joseph is Sinai, and Rabbah is a rooter-up of mountains. Why? Because they are real smart guys, real learned men of the day. So they were honored as mountains. This is Avi ben Mordechai, and I'm speaking about a statement that Yeshua made in Matthew 23, 7. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. We'll be back after our short break and return to deal with this all-important subject. You are listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-29. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. We'll now continue with our investigation into the Hebraic, and Semitic cultural, historical, archaeological, and theological background of Yeshua's use of the terms rabbi and father. So I would like to focus in specifically on this idea sadu rabu from the Akkadian language. It means a great mountain. This brings to mind some Jewish ideas in the days of Yeshua and well beyond him. The profoundness of learning that some Jewish teachers of the period had for great halachic learning and wisdom. Rabbinic schools and selected rabs or teachers with Jewish authority were in fact sometimes likened to mountains. For example, Rabbah Bar Nachmani is a rooter up of mountains because he had piercing judgment. Here's another one. Like Ben Azai, who taught profoundly in the streets of Tiberias, nor was there in his days a Kar Harim Kamunato, such another rooter up of mountains as he. And here is one from well over a century after Yeshua. He saw Resh Lakish in the school as if he were plucking up mountains and grinding them one upon another. In other words, one rabbi debating another rabbi, both of them going head to head on issues. And this stuff is done all the time in the Messianic movement. No wonder we have the problems that we have with pride arrogance. And this can help us to better understand some of the oral tradition contexts wherein Yeshua had announced his words about Aramaic robs and the esteemed Jewish teachers even in his own day. Matthew 
2121. So Yeshua answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, this term doubt, it's Jewish legal terminology. So Yeshua says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. That is, throwing off the authority of the Jewish mountains of the day, or the Christian mountains of the day, or the religious mountains of the day, or the government mountains of the day. I don't care. Pick whatever mountain you want. If we believe and trust in Yeshua, we are the rooters up of mountains, and we can throw them into the sea according to Matthew 18, and they will drown in the sea because our full authority comes from heaven and through the Messiah who died and resurrected for us. Our spiritual authority is through the Son of Heaven, Yeshua the Messiah. Fear not, for I've redeemed you.
take some summary thoughts and tie it all together. As I have previously explained, over time, Rabbi, or Rabbi, came to represent an ultimate spiritual teaching authority in Judaism as it essentially defined a Jewish man who was a skilled and learned man also an authoritative teacher of the legal texts and even a scholar able to interpret and teach the Hebrew scriptures with authority. No wonder Yeshua had that conflict with the Jewish religious teachers of his day as recorded in John 7:14 through 16. About the middle of the feast, Yeshua went up into the temple and taught. And the Yehudim marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Yeshua answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And in Matthew seven twenty-eight through 29 the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Nonetheless, Judaism's great teachers were oftentimes called a high mountain. So it was, I believe on this premise, that Yeshua was quite clear when he said in Matthew 23, 8, But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brethren. We are not high mountains, and we are not to understand our great learned teachers as great learned high mountains, because that is not what Yeshua taught us to do. Thus, we are all brothers or brethren, not rabbis. Thus, we can see that even Paul was never, ever called a rav or a rabbi by anyone. He certainly would not receive that. Look in Second Peter 3.15. Consider 
that the long-suffering of our Master is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Ancient biblical and extra-biblical history teaches us that the Emory or the Amorites and the Assyrians were reckless, destructive, injurious to regional populations and masters of control over local economies, food supplies, politics, and religion. Oftentimes, they were quite wasteful of human life like the Egyptians before them and the Romans after them, these powerful armies waged a war of attrition on their enemies with the influences of their various gods. As the kings bowed to the authority of their gods and sought to appease them within their religious cultures, so also they expected their success to be returned to them in their plans to lay waste to their enemies. In the case of the Syrian king Sanherib or Sennacherib, in the days of King Hizkiyahu or Hezekiah of Judah, Sennacherib or Sanchariv, was defeated by Jehovah and obviously quite distressed about it. So, after he returned to his native land in shame, he entered the temple of his God, and we learn from the narrative in 2 Kings 19.37, Now it came to pass, as he was bowing down in the temple of Nisroch, his God, that his sons Adramelech and Sha'ezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. With the passing of centuries, the Babylonian Aramaic term Rav gave birth to some additional meanings, such as Rabbi and Rabban. In the end, these ideas all came to describe a great teacher and scholar with definitive authority in Judaism a man who was recognized for his legal expertise and the handling of Jewish law and his ability to interpret the Hebrew scriptures. I believe that it was within this background, folks, that Yeshua said the things that he said and why he was so adamant about the brethren elevating teachers and religious cultures using terms like Rav, Rabbi, and Abba, a bunch of terminology that any of us might be tempted to find and use for the exercise of spiritual authority within elevated spiritual and religious contexts among all the nations and the peoples that surround us. According to Yeshua, it was not about the spiritual gift that a man had to truly expound on the word of truth. No, 
Rather, I believe it was all about what the bestowed spiritual gift might do to the man and to the people that he was and is supposed to be serving by accepting elevated spiritual titles that are related to the deities of the ancient Amori or Amorites, as well as the Assyrians, and later to the Babylonians, doing so essentially serves the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is, the Etzadato Virah from Genesis chapter 3. It serves us this fruit and causes us to eat it and to get our sustenance from this fruit. So, serving the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the man and or to the system and or to his ethnic culture, this is dangerous. The risk is in supplanting Jehovah's spiritual authority in the lives of his people, you and I. We must know that these types of people and their spiritual systems are going to be uprooted as they are the sprouts belonging to the Etzadato Virah, that is, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So, again, remembering what Yeshua said in Matthew 15, 12 through 13. Then his disciples came to him and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Ultimately, we must learn to not forge spiritual connections and covenants with those very things that Yeshua came to sever from our bond enslavement to the Genesis tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3. On one level, it is idolatry to elevate the feeble gods of others in the spiritual dimensions. On another level, it is a serious risk when we permit ourselves to be drawn into a relationship with the ancient spirits that fell from the Garden of Eden, the spiritual forces that are to this very day energizing and engaging the many religious people who are still relying on these high, lofty, exalted titles for their identity in the eyes of those that they are seeking to control using militant spiritual forces unseen to the human eye. Thus, my friends, as Jehovah says, Revelation 18.4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. And 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, 
I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says Jehovah. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says Jehovah El Shaddai. Thus, once again, let us receive the reminder that Yeshua decreed for all of us from Matthew 23, 8-12. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Messiah. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, folks, this concludes episode two in our two-part series on the topic of Yeshua's teaching in Matthew 23, 7 through 12. All the stuff he said as he was saying in no uncertain terms, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. You are invited to come back and join me again for another study into some of the intriguing words of Yeshua, as I'm trying, like you are, to get a better understanding of his teachings and overall ideas, all within the context of the biblical Hebraic texts of Scripture. Thanks for joining me today, here on Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. You've been listening to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio with your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. We hope that you have discovered some fresh insights into the ancient biblical Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. This podcast was brought to you by the Outreach Ministry of Coming Home. Visit our website at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. Yah Willing will hope to see you for the next podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Coming up on this podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, I will be taking a closer look into a statement that Yeshua made as it's recorded in John 3.3 3 and John 3.7 when he said, you must be born again. In these times in which we are living, this certainly has come to mean something far different from what I believe Yeshua originally meant for it to convey back in his day. So I will ask the question, what does it mean to be born again? Over the years, I have heard many proclaim the statement for themselves in boldly saying, I'm born again. Well, together we will look into its Hebraic background and 
and contextually examine why Yeshua said it and what born again should mean for us today as it was in ancient days. And along with this upcoming study on the biblical idea of being born again, we will also look at a little Hebrew word that appears in Exodus 19.5. Now, typically, the statement made in Exodus 19.5 says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. However, the Hebrew word that supports the term above all is showing us something very beautiful, that there is an above-below relationship between Yehovah and the world. In other words, that A is above B, and B is below A. Within the context of that relationship, that tiny little biblical word that gives us the declaration above all carries huge implications, especially for the meaning of the annual biblical festival of Shavuot. Also coming up on Real Israel Talk Radio, I'm going to be presenting a multi-part teaching series on the celebrated words of Isaiah chapter 53 and how these messianic words are pregnant with a depth of meaning that we often overlook in Bible study. But many among the ancients of Messianic Judaism certainly saw the connections because they heard it directly from Yeshua, who related to the words through his overall life and teachings. Stay tuned, because all of this and so much more is coming up here on Real Israel Talk Radio. Blessings to you. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai.